Before the episode, we wanted to let you know about Essential Tremors Presents, a new monthly series we're starting at Fadenzonen in the old Goucher neighborhood, directly behind WYPR. We'll be hosting live music, album listening parties, and live episode tapings. You can get more information by clicking on the Essential Tremors Presents link at EssentialPodcast.com. Now, on to the episode. I had a cassette of the, the singles in my car and just, you know, driving around for a couple of years with, with those things on repeat. I knew every stop and start. <laughs> I could have hummed it. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. face of band member resignations and reduction to just two of their original four members, Battles continues to thrive, making sounds that marry the analog and the digital, the manual and the automatic, all in a way that's unlike any other music currently being made. Currently comprised of guitarist and keyboardist Ian Williams and drummer John Stanier, their new album, Juice B. Crips, will be released this month by legendary UK label Warp Records. Our first conversation of two with the band was with Williams in the band's now former Manhattan practice space. The first song Williams chose as being highly influential to him was Tourette's by 90s Richmond, Virginia-based band Breadwinner. Yeah, so I, I have some songs. And it, it, like I was saying, I th- this kind of question, pick pick three, this, this kind of project to pick three songs that, that influenced me. Like, you know, I could always 
I still feel like I'm hearing songs now and going, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, it's still happening. So, and it started when I was, you know, my mom used to listen to records when I was a wee one and, you know, I would listen to music around her and, it, you know, and I used to always like to say Barry Manilow because she liked Barry Manilow growing up in the 70s. But then, and I told her that, and she got really mad mad at me. And she was like, I used to bring you to this symphony to see Shostakovich. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. I guess I kind of didn't think about that. But, you know, it's, 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 more, it's more like all the schmaltzy pop I remember. Um, but that, but, you know, but, you know, those kinds of things, I mean, like I, I could talk about, like, the flow from from uh, you know I loved Kiss when I was a little boy and then it, and then it turned into like other kinds of hard rock and like what was becoming heavy metal in the 80s but then then I discovered punk rock and then I kind of moved away from all that so I, but th- th- those are all sort of just generic kind of like generational like things like where it's like you know everybody I think of my age who you know went down a similar path they're gonna, they're gonna have the same touchstones so i thought it would be more appropriate to get more specific to talk about things that actually was uh stuff that really i think made me go ah you know when i was starting my bands and and starting to you know things that I I I realize have still stuck with me today, to to today in some ways, even though maybe the music I make doesn't sound like that at all anymore. But okay, so I'd say the first thing that I would have to acknowledge would, would be Breadwinner from uh, I forget like late eighties, early nineties, Richmond, Virginia band. They only put out seven inches when they were a band, although it's been compiled by Merge Records into a, an album called Burner. Um, and I could I could really probably almost pick any song on that, on Burner because um, I, I listen to those singles all the time. I think I was probably like 20, 19, 20 when those things came out. Shortly after that, Don Caballero got started going and... Uh, uh, and we really didn't sound like Breadwinner, although I think we probably wished we did um, at first to some degree. Um, so, it, and I think one of the things about Breadwinner, what, what they did, um, it, it was that it was just the beautiful cho- chopping up of of you know the, the Metallica style. Heavy, heavy, heavy riffage, but you know, sort of doing tape splices on it almost, uh, you know, like ridiculous jumps from what one one section to another, um, and it it, I, it it also, but they did it with a, sort of an aesthetic that was still sort of punk rock, and it wasn't. I mean, that was the whole thing. It sort of recycled it through sort of through the the lens of punk rock, so. It, which I mean, really, what did, what did that mean? I mean, it meant uh, it was a little less slick. I mean, whereas where, you know, technical metal would sort of slick things up, whereas this would sort of make it lo-fi right off the bat. Um, uh, 
uh, it sort of just had all these elements that I liked a lot. Um, I, I'd say like a song would be, uh, you know, the first track, Tourette's. That's a good one. Um, Do you remember where you first heard it? Uh, not necessarily. It's more that I remember. Well, I remember I saw them live in Pittsburgh at an art gallery on Forbes Avenue, and I also saw them. I saw them in New York City. Uh, so, uh, and I also I saw Beat happening right around the same time too in the same gallery. So, which was also an excellent show. Uh, so, yeah. That show was wicked. Um, I saw him in New York around the same time. And uh, so I, I remember that that aspect of it. I remember I had a cassette of the, the singles in my car and just, you know, driving around for a couple of years with, with those things on repeat. I knew every stop and start. <laughs> I could have hummed it. Oh, but, but, but it's something about it, though. I remember... Like Penn, the Penn Rawlings, the guitarist, he he had this thing like, you know, I th- I I believe it was emo- I think I'm using the right word. I, be- I believe it was he he boasted that their music had absolutely no emotion in it, in it at all, and uh, and to me I was like that's the best idea ever. <laughs> so and I think still to this day that 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 idea of like sucking the emotion out of music is still something that like. When, when I feel like, uh, or at least keeping the emotion in check and just being really careful with that, you know, and keeping it. Destroying emotion is great if you can get away with it, and you know if you know if it's going to be there, you know, really cage it in and 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 use its you know, let it only give it a little, a very short leash, and. uh I, th- I think this is th- an idea that still stays with, with me to this to this day. You know, I think it's possible to look back at the 80s and going into the 90s now as, you know, there was hardcore and then there was the 80s, you know, which shows up on, and then there was grunge, you know. But there was this other sort of stream coming up through that decade and into the 90s that is, like you're saying, it was sort of um, informed by punk or part of punk in a way but it was getting at some other thing and you know when i hear when i hear breadwinner or think about breadwinner i think of them as like you know one of the one of the first down the stream so to speak if that makes sense yeah 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 i should say as a human being i i am into emotion i think it's great and i think everybody should have a full spectrum of emotional intelligence that's something I realize as I get older and more grown up. But um, you're right about what you said. Uh, yeah, yeah. There was like a, just like a will, a willful, like leaping off the cliff, like that just said "fuck you" to so many things, and um, you know that uh, that nihilism I thought was just great, and uh, I loved it. And you were playing in bands at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me see. 
Yeah, I think I had. I think when I was like 18 and 19, I, I had been in a band uh, called Sledgehammer with my friend Carl Hendricks. Although that, I think, had broken up by then. And then, um, so, and, and I, I had a band with Manny Thiner. We were doing, we were doing some, uh, we were into a lot of the odd, odd time signatures. And, then, and then, then I started playing with Damon from the, the Don Cab drummer and that. And we had a project called Rock, Rocco Rocco. And then, but that then started, sort of got absorbed into Don Caballero. The second song chosen by Williams was Ghosts, First Variation, by avant-garde jazz saxophonist Albert Eiler. Sequential kind. I mean, you know, it was a period in my life in like the early '90s. Uh, so, you know, I was sort of working with that extreme rigidity from Breadwinner and the uh, uh, crushed emotion, and uh, and. At the same time, then I started. Well, a little after that, a few years later, Albert Eiler uh, trio was part of my listening to kind of like the 1960s canon of free jazz records, and and I got into. Uh, so I, I attached to the Albert Eiler stuff a lot. Um, well, may, maybe I should back it. So. Yeah, so it was sort of like this other end of the spectrum, this sort of like, you know, the anti-structure, the, you know, so it was like, you know, structure, what do you get with that? You know, counting numbers, blah, blah. And then, but then there was this sort of like the, the, the free, the, the anti-structure, the smash, smashing it all uh, thing. And um, so, and, and from the, the Albert Eiler stuff, I, I really enjoyed because he took sort of almost nursery rhyme like children melodies and that were quite simple you know before he he was sort of blurted out you know things would go a little more crazy after that but he would always have like really clear passages of like like simple melodies uh 
uh, very clear things. Uh, whilst the drumming and the bass would sort of smear, like structure would be completely smeared and cut to smithereens underneath it. And th- that there was a very nice... You know, you had sort of felt like the, uh, he had sort of been on a journey that was already that he had already like gone to the other side. Like, um, so Albert Eiler Trio, um, the record "Spiritual Unity" is a good one to listen to. The final song chosen by Williams as being crucial to his development as a musician was Oval Office by Oval. in the United States the fr- I, th- I think it was his first album Systemich it, it did this thing that to me was actually really structurally similar to the, the Albert Eiler stuff at least like what I took from it was similar uh, a similar influence because it it, it kind of chopped it, it grabbed uh, there was definite melodic information going on in that stuff even though he he tried to depersonalize it as much as he could, I think you know, and and he would he tried to sort of obscure it in weird ways, and be, because he, you know he he was very into the computer, the computer generate generating the logic that 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 dictated the song, so like the code would sort of take these things and and chop up the. Uh, like a shred of a song, and uh, which depersonalized it, which I, I found appealing because uh, you the depersonalization was uh, sort of a sexy element. Um, you kind of you know also like that's when I started listening to like Brian Eno and like he was into like the systems music like. Uh, you're setting some machines up in a way, you know, that, that feed into each other and creating a, a system that's going to generate its own lot that sort of, you know, it has its own internal logic that, and you sort of are almost like curating the machines and like letting the machines generate, sort of spool forth its spool forth their their uh their their bit of truth for you and like you the artist you are sort of shepherding them letting them do their thing and and sort of like uh, you know being able to uh create the conditions for the for them to uh make their 
expressions. So, it, it, which again really depersonalizes and take, takes the the uh, you know the artist out of it, which is kind of really sexy. Probably following the uh, earth-shattering revelations of breadwinners crushed emotion you have the human taken out of the process which was sort of a you know a, a thing that's always kind of stuck with me to some degree and you know the stuff that I, st- I still do now like I, I I like it when I'm always you know when, when I'm creating music now I'm still always looking for ways to set machines up or you know it could be software it could be hardware whatever but things that have their own intelligence that are going to feed into each other one triggers the next which trigger triggers the next and you know you get you know kind of like the chaos theory thing the butterfly flaps its wings and there's a hurricane across the the world it becomes difficult pretty quickly to really know how things are going to turn out like you know i you know simple things like i'm going to plug my guitar into a distortion pedal and it'll go into reverb and then out of an amplifier like okay that, that's that's pretty s- simple chain and like you you can probably tell what's going to happen but once you get there's so many insane sound tools nowadays like you you feed like i i find like it, it it's pretty tough to know. You can really get beyond, like, you know, your, the, you know, like, you can go beyond where you, your own human limitations will stop. You know, like, you know, you know as an artist, I'm gonna usually, as an actual person, I'll probably get stuck in these cliches and these things that I've I do out of habit and like my own few personal expressions and then and so it gets pretty boring pretty after a little while and it probably would trickle down to the listener eventually too like yeah like uh, he's doing that again it's pretty uninspired but like you can set machines up now to do things that are just absolutely like and if you do it in a tasteful cool way and you set up the right things like like an insane stuff can happen and, and like it's still endlessly fascinating the stuff that happens and you know, so then going back to like the systemic record, you know, I, I think the, the I mean, like the result. I mean, maybe he just curated it really well, and like there was like a hundred hours that were pretty stupid, and like he just trimmed it down to like the best forty minutes. But the the stuff that happens on the record is all really beautiful, and yeah. Speaking of signal chains, I'm struck by the fact that we ended up talking about systemish and oval, and we started out talking about and how you know machines can sort of do more than humans and we started out talking about albert eiler who at least i think of as one of the most human sounding performers that there ever was right and right but for some reason to me those two things are so closely related i mean i I know what you mean yeah and it seems and you know like the so shortly after like after like uh, you know, like I started doing, like, I, I think, in 94, the, I was in a band called Storm and Stress up until 2000. We made two records. And, you know, I think that we were sort of inspired by those ideas of, like, the human, like, we were live humans. We weren't playing electronic things besides an electric guitar and bass. And, uh, but it was about, we were 
the, it was the human going through sort of like this post-apocalyptic kind of uh, thing where like the, the human is so smashed that like you the difference between you and a machine is I mean deep, you know Devo tackled that one too but it was a different way of tackling that issue I was really hoping this was the part where we were going to get to talk about Storm and Stress. Or Devo. Or Devo. Uh, but mainly Storm and Stress. Okay. <laughs> Just because I thought that, you know, and I'm more familiar with the first record, that that came along at a really interesting time and did a really interesting thing. And hearing you talk about what you just talked about and connecting it to that, it's like, right. I totally hear that. Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, so like, I think, like, I mean... I, I, you know, the guitar parts in that I thought were sort of expressing these simple, straight melodies, even though there was like a lot of instability inside of it and stuff like that. And, and I mean, yeah, it's really connected to, to like those those records, I think. has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcast central. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.